Good morning, church. My name is Stephen. I'm the young adult pastor here. And uh, I want to start today by making a confession, which I think might discredit everything else that I have to say, but I need to make the confession nonetheless, that despite what I tell my kids that it's better to give than to receive, I must admit, I still love receiving gifts so much more <laughs> than giving gifts. Can anybody be honest and, and identify with me this morning? Yeah, I, I thought that maybe I would like something you kind of grow out of, something you mature into, but apparently I'm, I'm still not there yet. So pray for me on that. But I want to give uh, you all today a hierarchy of receiving gifts. This is the deep theological constructs you get when Pastor Brett is not in the pulpit, okay? <laughs> the worst to the best kind of gift, okay? The worst gift imaginable is the unexpected bad gift. The unexpected bad gift. A couple years ago, uh, I got a gift from a friend who gave me a, like a seven or eight-year-old video game wasn't old enough to be vintage. It wasn't new enough to be cool. It had a $7 clearance tag on the back of the cover. I mean, it was just unexpectedly bad. A little bit better than that is the expected bad gift. Like, you know it's going to be bad, but at least you can, like, brace yourself for it. So, like, for instance, my, my dad's side of the family, we have, like, a Christmas uh, party with his side of the family, and every year we do this white elephant gift exchange, which I don't know why we do it, because every year I know for a fact I'm going to take that $10 gift and throw it in the garbage. But at least I can expect how bad it's going to be. I can brace myself for it. Next is, this is better, now we're getting the good territory of, of gifts, is the expected good gifts. You're expecting something, you make it very clear. You know, us men, we need our wives to make it very clear what they want. Like, include the Amazon link to what you want. I mean, just make it easy for us. Lower the bar as low as you possibly can. And so, you know, I'll, I'll tell my wife, I told my wife this year, I just want a brown leather belt um, because I need a new belt. I would show you, but then you'd probably take more pity on me that I'm still wearing a belt this old and dilapidated. And she's going to get me a brown belt, and when I see it, it's going to be great. I probably won't do backflips because it's a belt, but I expected it. I needed it. It's going to be great. But the best kind of gift is the unexpected good gift. It's the gift. The best kind of gifts are the gifts that you get that when you open it up, you didn't even recognize or realize that you needed that gift. And you realize, wow, I needed that gift. Thank you so much. And my wife is the best at this. She's like the best gift giver I know, okay? Um, when we first started dating, we started dating in, in December, so it was a couple weeks before Christmas. And it was kind of in that awkward period of time where we'd only been dating a couple weeks, so we didn't know each other too well. We're not going to, you know, I'm not going to buy her like a diamond necklace or something like that. But, I mean, I want her to still be my girlfriend, so I'm going to get her something nice. And same with her. And so... I was one of those like hopeless bachelors, like that just couldn't cook, couldn't tie his own shoes. Like it was just, it was bad, right? Like I needed a wife. God knew in his sovereignty that I needed a wife to take care of me, okay? And so I used to pick her up on dates wearing this brown Sherpa coat, which was a nice coat, you know? It was nice for like 40, 50 degree weather. Um, but not for like negative 10 degree weather. And it didn't matter like what the temperature was outside. I was wearing my brown Sherpa coat with no hat, no gloves, 
no scarf. It's just that's what it was. And so when I, I was, I guess I was just warmed by her presence and the love. I didn't even need. I'm trying to get some points here. You know what I'm saying? So Christmas comes around and I open up this Christmas present and, you know, I'm the clueless bachelor. I don't recognize, you know, that what I need. And in that box is a new hat, new gloves, new scarf, and a new coat. And, you know, my parents are, you know, this is my first girlfriend. They were trying to figure her out a little bit. And when I, when she gave me that gift to them, it was sealed. It was done. Like this was the woman right here. But it's the unexpected good gifts that are always the best gifts. And today I want to talk to you about a really good gift that was completely unexpected. And I can imagine that here this morning, all of us could use an unexpectedly good gift. Amen? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through 7. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The title of this message is Embracing the Unexpected. And the two points are an unexpected king and an unexpected kingdom. I want to give you a little background on this passage that we read. It's a very familiar passage, one that we read a lot um, during this Christmas time. But the key player during, or one of the key players during this time period, is a guy by the name of King Ahaz. King Ahaz was the king of Judah. And the nation of Israel was split up into two nations, and the, the two southern tribes uh, were the, was called the country of Judah, and the northern tribes was Israel. This is right around 700 B.C., that, that decade. And uh, King Ahaz came from a pretty good lineage. He was uh, from the line of David, Israel, one of Israel's greatest kings. His father, Jotham, was someone who followed God and was one of the rare kings who actually um, was obedient to God. But for some reason, we don't know why um, Ahaz didn't follow in his father's footsteps or in David's footsteps. He led the nation into widespread idolatry. He began to worship false gods, and he even sacrificed his own son as an offering to one of those false gods. And as a result of his disobedience, God allowed a nation called Syria, S-Y-R-I-A, Syria, and the, north, the northern neighbor, Israel, to come against Ahaz's nation of Judah. It was a direct result of his disobedience that these two nations were coming, coming up against him. And so King Ahaz has a defining moment. His, these two armies are, are really taking a serious uh, attack on his own army. And God speaks to him. And God says, don't worry about this nation of Syria and of Israel because you're going to be completely okay. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. You're going to be fine. And Ahaz has to choose, is he going to trust in God his protection, his provision, or is he going to turn to someone else? And he decides to turn to someone else. He decides to turn to a nation who was the world power of that time, an empire called Assyria, different than Syria, Assyria. 
And Assyria had all the power, had a great military. And so Ahaz makes this alliance with Assyria in order to attack these two other kingdoms. And what happens is, because he trusts in this nation of Assyria, it works out for the, in the beginning, but ultimately Judah becomes a puppet of Assyria. Assyria controls them, and ultimately his own nation of Judah comes to be destroyed, all because he disobeyed God and trusts in something other than God, which is a sidebar to say, be careful of the things that you trust in other than God, because ultimately they'll lead to your demise. I've gone through a season here the last um, six months where I've found myself in times of uh, where I've been struggling or where I've been depressed, where I've been sad, looking for something other than God to fill that void in my heart. And so I would go through my day and, you know, I got, we have young kids and, you know, responsibilities and that kind of stuff. And I would wait for that time when we could put the kids in bed at 8 p.m., like 8 p.m. is the glory hour in the law household. It's peace. Or waiting for that day off. But ultimately, when I would go to those things that I would do, like whether it's checking ESPN or surfing on the internet, whatever it is, ultimately, when I would go there to be filled, I'd feel empty. Because when you trust in something other than God, it can't fill you, it can't satisfy you. You can trust in a job, you can trust in a relationship, you can trust in a house, you can trust in a dream for your kids, but that thing or person, if your hope's in that, will eventually lead you down. And then in the midst of the, the ashes, the mourning, the devastation that this nation of Judah is experiencing comes this incredible promise. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This announcement of an unexpected king. A child will be born to us. What does Judah think, what does Judah think it needs in this moment? A powerful LeBron James six foot seven Rambo machine gun carrying military leader that can overthrow these two nations coming against it. And yet they get a promise of a child. Now, we have three children, and I can tell you when they came into this world, they were not much help in providing protection and provision to me and my wife. Babies cry. They stay up late all night. They need to be changed. And yet there's an amazing, surprising blessing in the promise of a child. God was coming down in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He was taking on, he would take on human flesh. He would come not in a royal palace where you'd expect a king to come. He would come not in the synagogue where you'd expect like a religious leader to come, but he would come in a manger, in a place dirty, in a place reserved for animals to show that God was willing to come down to the dirtiest of places in the biggest of mess because of his love for us. That's what this Christmas season is all about. It's about the incarnation, Jesus taking on the flesh of you and I, human flesh, and becoming a blessing to us. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Now, when I first read this passage, that second line, a son will be given to us, seemed synonymous to the first line. A child to be born, a son to be given, sounds like the same exact thing happening. But there's a really important distinction in that second line in that this son was given. One of the most famous verses that we all 
know and love John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. This son would not just be born, but he'd be given for you and for I, for me. You know, when you go to a, uh, like a baby shower, there's an excitement, right? You come to the baby shower and you have some gifts and you play some bizarre, silly games that don't matter, but um, you know, you're, you're there to celebrate the birth of a child. But then when it's over, you go home. And it's that couple's baby. And yet God gives us this child for us to take home. Knowing that we would be responsible for putting him up on the cross. Knowing that we would turn our back from him. Knowing that we would rebel against him. Knowing that ultimately his son that was a gift would be put up on a cross. That is love. And that's what being given is all about. Jesus was a son that was given. And then it says the government will rest on his shoulders. Now King Ahaz was a grown man, someone you'd expect as a leader to carry a lot of weight. Yet he had really tiny shoulders. Tiny shoulders in the spirit. Because he couldn't carry the weight of this nation. Here was a people that had something on their shoulders, but it wasn't the government. It was bondage and oppression from foreign nations. And yet, here's a child who would come and who would carry the government or the rule of God on his shoulders. Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. And can I just say in this Christmas season that our faith is distinct from the rest of the culture and that our hope is that someone else, our Savior, is carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. Like somebody needs to hear that this morning, that the pressure of being a good wife, the pressure of being a good husband, the pressure of being great in the workplace, the pressure of all these responsibilities doesn't need to fall on your shoulders, that Jesus actually has the power, the authority to carry your weight on his shoulders. And he actually gives you an invitation to place that weight on him. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called. Here's the good part, good part right here. Every parent loves the time that they get to name their child, right? You're up late at night, you're scouring babynames.com, you're trying them out on your child, like are you going to go with the cool trendy name or the family name or the biblical name? So I remember our, our children, our, our son, his name is Josiah. We thought, you know, you can't go wrong with the biblical strong name Josiah, you know. It means fire of the Lord. And it ended up being, you know, pretty true to who he is. He's a leader. He's fiery. And that can be incredibly awesome and incredibly frustrating at the same time. Our second child, Willow, we didn't, um, God gave us this name, Willow. We thought it was a cool name as well. And uh, later on, we found out about some medical challenges that she had. And yet we found out that a willow tree is, has very delicate branches, but a very strong root system. We said, God, you knew what you were doing when you gave us that name. Our third child, Ren, we just kind of like the name Ren, I'll be honest. We just kind of picked that name. Maybe she'll be like this singer or something because Ren birds are like amazing singing birds. But um, we just kind of honestly like the name. But this child has four names. He's so glorious, 
so powerful, so majestic, he needs more than one name, he needs four. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. If you come to someone on staff here at Grace and you're in, in need of some help, we have a list of recommended counselors. Counselors for marriage, counselors for um, things that you're trying to overcome in your, your childhood, counselors for anxiety, depression. Because there's something about a counselor who has experience and wisdom, right? Like if you're struggling in your marriage, you don't go to someone who's just married like two minutes. You go to someone who has some experience, who's been there, who has some wisdom. And God repeatedly through the book of Isaiah chastises Judah's counselors. They're looking at black magic. They're trusting in sorcery. They're trusting in these other nations. And yet he promises a wonderful counselor. Literally, the, the language here is a wonder of a counselor, an unusual, miraculous ability to make wise plans. What separates Jesus from all the other counselors that this world has to offer. Well, one, he had the advantage of being there from the beginning of time. John 1, verse 1, John is talking about the Word, meaning Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus has been reigning with the Father for all of eternity, and he's seen all of human existence, and he has the advantage of having a perspective that is, has been there from the beginning. Secondly, Jesus has the spirit of God resting on his shoulders. Isaiah, later in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, verse 2, says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Every decision that Jesus made on the earth was inspired by and guided by the Holy Spirit. And he proved his wisdom while here on this earth. There's a a moment where um, the religious elite at the time, the Pharisees, come to Jesus and um, they're not too happy because Jesus' disciples are plucking off heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had uh, created these 39 regulations on the Sabbath, 39 things that you could not do. And one of them was to reap on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has to confront this uh, group of religious elite He's got to use an example to show why his disciples aren't in the wrong. I mean, they're, they're really hungry. And so he draws an example from David. And he says, remember the time that uh, David was with his men, and his men were famished, his men were hungry, and they go to the priest. And David says, do you have anything to eat? And the priest says, um, all we have here is the holy bread. And David says, well, look, my men are starving. And the priest ends up giving the bread to David. And so Jesus points back to that story, which seems kind of interesting, doesn't mean a lot to us, but for these Pharisees, they were religious Jews, they were, I mean, David was their hero. And so Jesus points back to a story and uses their version of George Washington. He uses their national hero and David and says, hey, if it's good enough for David, it's good enough for my disciples. You guys have taken rules and placed them above life, but I, Jesus says, am the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the wisdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? But not only could he speak to the religious elite, not only could he go toe-to-toe with those who were theologically trained and spent years in school studying religion, he had an ability to make complex, eternal 
principles known to those who are simple. Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. Jesus delivers this message in front of a people who are uneducated, who are poor, who are helpless, and he takes the complexity of the kingdom of God and he makes it as simple for them to understand. That's the wisdom of our God. He is a wonderful counselor. He meets us where we are and guides us. There's a lot of places that you can find counsel today. There's 11 or 12 political figures who are vying to be your counselor. There's horoscopes in the newspaper that will give you guidance on your day. There's self-help books telling you, girl, wash your face, giving you 12 rules for life. There's family and friends who over Thanksgiving dinner told you the man you should have married and told you the career you should have taken and the city you should have moved to. But there's only one wonderful counselor. And you can trust Jesus Christ, the plan he has for your life, and his leading. Secondly, mighty God. Mighty God. Now Judah wanted someone who'd use their, use their power to restore their nation to power. And isn't that the way we use our might? Like, I remember when I was a, when I was a kid, um, probably in elementary school, one day the teacher gave me the chalk. Now, for all of you who are younger, the chalk is like the thing that you would write on. There's like dust that would get on you. And she gave me the chalk and she said, Stephen, um, if anybody misbehaves, I want you to write their name down. And so I developed this elaborate system in which if you did something wrong, I'd write one letter of your name down. You know, I kind of show it to you, right? I didn't think about the fact that the people with the longer names had the advantage in the system, but in my mind, you know, it worked really well. But that's how we use power when we have it, right? We long for that day where we won't be the one working 60 hours, but somebody will be working for us. We won't have to get the coffee. They'll have to get the coffee for us. And yet Jesus, the mighty God, used his might to serve others. He served the oppressed. He served the widow. He served the poor. He served the disadvantaged. He used his might to help you and I, when we were far from him. Thirdly, eternal father. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father. And this is the one that is a little bizarre because Jesus is the son of God. We think of the Trinity, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't married, he didn't have any kids. So why is Jesus referred to as the eternal father? Well, a king's role during that time was to provide and to protect his people. And if you think about the role of a father, it's exactly the same. I mean, what father do you know who wouldn't actually die to protect and to provide for his children? Jesus embodied what it meant to protect and provide by sacrificing himself, by getting up on that cross. He was the eternal father in that his blood just as much then, now, and forever, will atone for our sins. We don't experience the penalty of sin, which is death, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us. He is an eternal father. He protects us, he provides for us, and ultimately he covers our sin. And then lastly, Prince of Peace. The nation was, was longing for peace. They saw Syria and Israel as their enemies. But really the true source of their anxiety was God. 
They had opposed God. They had distrusted God. And if there's ever someone in your life, whether it's a coworker, a family member, maybe an ex-spouse, maybe somebody like a boss, that is the source of your anxiety, it's probably a good indication that Jesus isn't your prince of peace. You're allowing someone else to steal your peace. That God is actually the one that you need to have peace with and experience his peace in order that you can be an agent of peace to others. You know, I came across a story of a guy named Daryl Davis, who was a, uh, who is a famous uh, African-American R&B and blues musician. He's played piano for the likes of uh, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and B.B. King. And when Daryl Davis was 10 years old, uh, he was in an all-white Cub Scout pack in the Northeast. And one day there was a parade and um, during this parade, all of a sudden, he, w- he started being pelted by bottles and rocks. And you can imagine the uh, confusion of a 10-year-old boy who was getting pelted with these objects just because he was black. You can imagine what kind of uh, perhaps bitterness or resentment that could have grown in his heart. But Daryl Davis decided from that point on to figure out how he could get to know people who didn't like him. And so what he spent his life doing is intentionally pursuing members of the KKK. He would intentionally find these people, sit down with them, befriend them. And and he was convinced that if they sat down and got to know who he was and recognized he was just a normal person like them, that they would eventually renounce being a part of the KKK. And over the course of this time, over 200 members of the KKK, both directly and indirectly from his influence, ended up renouncing the KKK, and 20 of them actually gave them their cloaks. And when I read that story, I thought, man, this guy has to be a Christian. And I did a little bit more digging, and sure enough, he attributes his faith in Jesus Christ as the reason why he has this ministry of reconciliation. Here's a guy who experienced the peace, the Prince of Peace, and as a result, brought peace to everybody he encountered. In the midst of Judah's gloom, Isaiah gives a royal birth announcement. A child will be their unexpected king, and this unexpected king would usher in an unexpected kingdom. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This kingdom would have no end. If you read through First and Second Kings, chronicles all the different kings of Israel and Judah, and there's a list of all these different kings. And some of them led for 55 years, I think was the longest, Manasseh. Some of them just seven days. And Ahaz was, you know, somewhere in between was 16 years. But there's one thing that all these kings of Israel and Judah had in common. Their kingdom came to an end. It came to an end. And what Isaiah is trying to get through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the people of Judah to see, is that there's a kingdom that's invisible. There's a king that will establish his reign forever. There will be no end to this kingdom. You know, we set up our own kingdoms. We listen to uh, employers promise us a kingdom of a career Um, We're tempted to set up a social media kingdom. 
We're listening to political candidates lay out their political vision of a kingdom. And none of those things are necessarily bad. But just know that all of them will not last. In four years, there's going to be a new president. There's going to be a new social media. I mean, you got thousands of, of MySpace, and you got thousands of Facebook, and then you got thousands of Twitter followers, and then it's Instagram, and now you guys aren't on TikTok? What's going on? You're late. Because these empires that we build eventually fade away. And yet God made a promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And that's what that word advent means. It means coming. And you know, what's often lost is that, yes, we look back to Jesus and his coming, his first coming. But what's often lost is that the early church had not only appreciation for Jesus' first coming, but they had an expectation for his second coming. That this king is going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom. It's already been established, but it's going to be more fully realized that it's never going to end, that there's going to be an end to death and disease and sickness and pain. And there's a lot of things in this world that we can't figure out. There's a lot of questions that we'll still have even when we die. But one thing's for sure, there will be a day where every wrong is made right, where every tear is wiped up, where every sense of pain and loss and death will end. This king is coming back and his kingdom will never end. You know, in closing, in closing this morning, if we're honest, when I, when I first read this story, I kind of had King Ahaz, like, over here. He was in a category of, like, the really bad people I'm nowhere near, right? There's this category of bad people. But if we're honest, we have a lot more in common with King Ahaz than we'd like to admit. We haven't paid tribute to the king of Assyria for protection, but we put our trust in things like a job or a relationship or a portrayal of our life that we endlessly prop up. We don't have a literal political kingdom, but we've set up many kingdoms chasing careers and hobbies and social media platforms. And in the midst of our gloom and our anguish and our idols failing us, we receive a royal birth announcement about an unexpected king who came and is coming back and an unexpected kingdom that is here now in part but will one day be fully realized. What do we do on Christmas when you receive an unexpected, amazing gift? Well, you open it up, you cling to it, you tell everyone about it, you tell them that they need that gift too. So this morning... Let's take the idols in our hands, lay them aside, so we can grab onto this unexpected gift. Let's get around our dinner tables with family, friends, and go through an Advent devotional. Go on YouVersion or Ann Voskamp has this uh, devotional about, about Jesus and uh, going, walking you through one day, each day this month, in anticipation of Jesus and his, and his coming. Let's take a moment as a church, on Advent and music, on Sunday mornings, as candlelight services, 
to cling to this gift of Jesus, to sing about him, to tell him how great he is. And let's tell our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, just how amazing this gift is so that they can experience and embrace the unexpected gift. Let's pray.